Hi there, welcome to episode 43 of Paranormal Blip. And we have got an incredible episode, uh, special really, because I am going to talk a little bit about the uh, latest uh, movers and shakers in the UAP world. And then we're going straight into an epic conversation with Omega Point, uh, Daniel. So um, my heartfelt gratitude to Daniel, who spent a lot of time talking to me about Loose Threads. Obviously, Loose Threads is linked in the episode description and um, a couple of other things that uh, we uh, bring up in the conversation. Uh, they're linked as well. An amazing interview that um, Dr. Eric G Davis gave to Alessandro Rojas a couple of years ago, which is amazing. And also a book called Altered Traits that Daniel recommends. Um, so you can find those links in the episode description. Episode description. Um, thank you ever so much, by the way, for following me on Twitter. Um, that's at Paranormal Blip on Twitter. And on Instagram as well. Yes, are you still there, Instagram? I don't know. But I do know that a couple of you are on Instagram, aren't you? Yes. And also thank you ever so much for uh, listening to... Uh, this show. We've had a fantastic couple of weeks in terms of people sharing the show and lots and lots of new listeners. So I really, really appreciate that. So thank you very, very much. Now, just before we go into the interview with Amiga Point, um, I do have to obviously uh, recommend Weaponized and Merged, the two um, like high-end podcasts. <laughs> Uh, what merged is by Ryan Graves and weaponized is by George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell. And they're released on um, YouTube, you know, on kind of Tuesdays. And I don't know when, um, I think maybe they're both Tuesdays, maybe Mondays and Tuesdays. And um, the, the production values are really out of this world. You know, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful pieces of art, just the look of them. You know, the content is amazing as well. Uh, and I'm really, you know, excited about uh, what's coming down the pipe. Um, Amiga Point Daniel, he talks about the new book that's been released by Jacques Vallée in the last couple of days, um, Forbidden Science 5. And also we've got Leslie Kane's um, UFO uh, documentary series that was uh, made with um, like uh, four CNN essentially, but then uh, it's now going to be on Nat Geo, National Geographic, and on Disney Plus, um, and that's in a couple of weeks' time, I believe. So you know, look out for that. Obviously, I'll be talking about that when it releases. And um, yeah, so you know, lots and lots and lots going on. But uh, let's go over right now to my interview with Amiga Point. So it is my pleasure to welcome onto Paranormal Blip Amiga Point, also known as Daniel Elizondo. Hello, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you doing? I'm really brilliant, and I've been really looking forward to this. Um, so let's let's get going. So you are. Let me just introduce you to the, uh, you know, the kind of audience, the the listeners. Uh, you are one of the co writers, one of the kind of two main writers and researchers um, of this PDF 
that came out a couple of months ago called Loose Threads. Now, Loose Threads is, you know, I've been talking about it on the podcast and it's uh, created waves in the kind of UFO community. And uh, first of all, maybe this is a good place to start, actually, Daniel. Um, what is Loose Threads? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that Loose Threads started out as um, just sort of uh, just a couple of connections, right? That I was chatting with my co-author who is known as the Hermetic Penetrator. Um, so uh, I call him Hermes, um, uh -huh. just to shorten it. Um, just kind of dialoguing back and forth about, hey, have you noticed that this this thing connects to this thing and that thing connects to that thing? And, um, you know, it, it, and it really was, I think, precipitated by a couple of things. It was precipitated by um, the interview that came out with uh, James Oak Shannon, um, who um, is, is kind of important for a couple of reasons, um, by Jay for Project Unity. Uh -huh. um, it was also precipitated by the release of his notes um, by Oak Shannon's notes from the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group meetings in, um, in, in 1985. And so uh, those things coming out uh, basically started a dialogue between Hermes and I where we were starting to kind of kind of ping pong back and forth and kind of almost like one-upping each other. Like, hey, did you see that this? Oh, but did you notice that? And just, and it, and it got to a point where we just said, hey, why don't we do something together? Because I was already, you know, uh, writing and blogging and he was writing and blogging. And, you know, it seemed like we had kind of a shared interest in this. And so that's kind of what it turned into. Um, it turned into this collaborative effort. Um, and what we found was that in investigating those connections um, between Oak Shannon's notes from the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group meetings in 1985 and the Wilson Davis document, which has been, you know, talked about at length and written about at length prior to, mm -hmm. to what we'd done. Um, that we were basically zeroing, zeroing in on a group of people. Um, these people are scientists, they're intelligence community officials. Um, they are members of the military industrial complex. We were basically zeroing in on this group of people that basically constituted a, a movement. And this movement continues to today. And, and so there are a lot of things that are going on right now. Um, up to and including, I would argue, even Arrow and the things that are happening with that, that would not have happened um, had it not been for this movement. And and so we're basically zeroing in on this group of people and how they connect, how they relate to each other, statements they've made, um, things that they've published. And we, we really tried to let the sources speak. And it does sort of paint a picture of sort of this journey right, of these guys to basically try and find their way um, to the middle of these ultra-secret um, UFO reverse engineering programs. And, and so that's what it really turned into. That's not what we <laughs> set out to do. That's just what happened, um, that these same people started popping up over and over and over again. Um, and we really did our best to try and stay away from rumor um, and really stick with what is it that they themselves have said? Whether or not we can take that at face value, with you know, uh, is is one thing. But let's let's at least put their statements um, together, um, you know, and and uh, and go from there. And so it it was definitely uh, um, 
it felt like it was writing itself, right? Like it, after a while, like we were just along for the ride, discovering discovering all of these things. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, that's that's how you get what you know. Loose threads to, is is very wide, but it does have it does have a narrative. Um, but it's not a narrative that myself or Hermes came up with. It's a narrative that is just kind of woven into, um, you know, the the statements and the things that people have said and and things that people have done and published and you know over history. We're basically looking at a really important part of this sort of denied history. Um, and so I think it, it serves as a really nice primer uh, for folks who um, want to learn more about where we are today in the UFO uh, mystery and how we got here. Um, and, and even what are the things that are being studied and being looked at um, in the background um, and, and getting familiar with those things, because a lot of the things that they were looking at in 1985 it turns out that they are looking at now right or or at least very recently so yeah, yeah. um anyway yeah it's 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 a lot it's a lot that's why it's a long answer to a short question <laughs> yeah absolutely but and also this is obviously the the pdf is is linked in the episode description of this of this uh, episode and um, it actually links to your to your medium, and then through that, with your kind of introduction, um, Daniel. Um, so, key to this, then this this group of people, uh, the Advanced Theoretical Physics Group. There's a couple of names in there that 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 crop up time and time again. You know, mm -hmm. um, Hal Puthoff, um, John Alexander. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kit Green is in there. Uh, a couple of people that kind of move around from mm -hmm. uh, group to group almost. And mm -hmm. yeah, like you say, there are connections to these other groups, you know, like OSAP and then, um, you know, uh, ATIP and all of that later on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, the, the beginnings of that group are quite uh, interesting. There was the fellow from Skunk Works the fellow who's mm -hmm. that well i've totally forgotten his name now what's what was that ron blackburn name? that's it yeah. blackburn so was mm -hmm. it it was him and um john alexander is that right they were the kind of co yeah. yeah and then yeah do you want to talk a little bit not now i know that you know you've kind of spoken about this in other interviews mm -hmm. and by the way i'll i i was saying to you just a minute ago that i've been listening to you all day because i listened to your amazing breakdown of this in um with uh, Richard Dolan, which I will link, and I think mm -hmm. that people need to check that out if they haven't done. And you know, not to kind of do the same thing again, but just to give my audience a bit of a kind of, you know, smidgen of info about who this group were, um, kind of you know where they came from, who they were, and what they were aiming to do. Absolutely. So um, it, it really all starts with the Army, and specifically INSCOM. Um, Colonel John Alexander. Uh, is finds himself uh, as what he terms a freelance colonel. Um, he, uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which is just his personal interest, um, but he he finds himself um, connected with something called Task Force Delta, and Task Force Delta is um, basically described as a very like a forward-looking um, think tank that is trying to find ways to give the army an edge, right? To make sure that they stay up to date 
um, both with uh, in comparison to the other branches, but also, um, you know, uh, with regard to the enemy as well. And so they are looking for, um, you know, outside the box and not even just outside the box. He, I think he said at one point that it was so outside the box that they didn't even know that the box existed. Um, and, and so he meets, uh, Colonel Alexander meets through um, Task Force Delta, um, you know, a few people. And um, uh, one of those people is General Albert Stubblebine who appears quite a bit and um, you know some of your some of your listeners may be familiar with him due to his work at the with the remote viewing program um, but he also meets uh, Ron Blackburn and Ron Blackburn is uh, an engineer uh, at Lockheed Skunk Works I think he's even a senior engineer there and um, they basically get together and find that they have a lot in common right that they have this shared um, conviction that there are um, that there are UFO hidden UFO reverse engineering projects right somewhere, um, and and perhaps even um, a little bit of incredulity that they have not been included on that. Especially, I could see that from Ron Blackburn's standpoint, working for Lockheed Skunk Works. Um, and so they start to um, they they decide that that they want to try and get to the bottom of this. They want to try and get to um, the center of what becomes known as sort of like the secret onion, right? Um, because of the layers of secrecy. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, so they're trying to figure out how to get in. And, um, and, and so it's, it's with that um, in mind that they decide maybe we need to build a, um, a, a working group, right? We need to bring together people who either have knowledge of the programs or might be able to um, help us to make headway to get access to those programs, right? They're trying to create a need to know, a center of gravity, if you will. Um, and they figure that if they can get enough of these people in the room and they can um, you know, get enough knowledge in the room on that topic, on that subject, maybe they will be able to either discover it um, or they will be able to um, actually get, get access to it, right? That they'll be able to get read in and, and get the answers that they, you know, are desperately seeking. Um, and so at, at one point they literally go to um, early on uh, a skiff at Lockheed Skunk Works with, and they basically have a list of names and they compare this list of names, um, Colonel Alexander and, um, and Dr. Blackburn, just sort of talking about, here's who I want to include, who's, or here's who I want to include and why. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so that's kind of how it's, how it's born. Um, the first meeting we believe um, happens in 1985 at a skiff at a place called uh, a BDM, Braddock, Dunn, and McDonald. Um, this is a, a, a defense contractor who, um, at that point, um, General Albert Stubblebine, uh, who was, you know, uh, really connected with John Alexander. John Alexander reported to Stubblebine. He was, he was Stubblebine's action officer. Stubblebine was forced into an early retirement, um, and he goes to work straight to BDM. Um, and, and so that's where the first, um, the first few meetings happen. And it seems that the majority of the meetings ended up happening there at BDM, um, in 1985. And so that's kind of, that's sort of what they were doing as a group, the advanced theoretical physics working group. Um, the amount of times they met is sort of, eh, I don't think there's a, a true answer, honestly, because there was sort of this official group, but then over the years, it kind of dwindled. They added new members, people left. 
And then it becomes less of a, hey, we're meeting in a skiff and more like, hey, we're going to go and have dinner at uh, Colonel John Alexander's house, right? Or we're going to go and meet at this restaurant and talk about this. And it it becomes, I think, a little bit more fractured where you have pockets of people that are talking and, you know, about this other pocket of people. Um, And so it just evolves, right, as relationships Mm do. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's what sort of leads to some of these, um, ongoing relationships that lead to where we are modern day. Um, mm-hmm. if that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just for the audience, a skiff is a, um, is basically a secure space where people can meet mm-hmm. knowing that they're not going to be monitored or recorded in any way. There's kind of like security built into the structure of the, of the building or the room within a building. So that's mm-hmm. what a skiff is, S-C-I-F, yeah? Which is, mm-hmm. do you know off the top of your head what that stands for? I can't remember. Oh, I'm sure Secure like controlled secure something. C- controlled. I- ice cream, yeah. I think, is the... Uh, Sensitive compartmented oh, yeah. information facility. God, you're good. <laughs> yeah. You're good. Okay, yeah, so that's a skiff. So so, um, what one thing that I was really interested in when I heard about this... And when I started reading about it, because I think I actually heard the Dolan interview before I had finished, definitely before I'd finished it, um, the uh, loose threads. But the remote viewing, okay, I spoke a couple of um, months ago, I think it was in December, to Daz Smith, who's this British based remote viewer. And mm-hmm. a, I know that you know this, but I'm kind of talking to my audience here mm-hmm. who probably do know. I mean, you probably heard the episode, audience. <laughs> but anyway, he's a British-based remote viewer. He's a kind of um, archivist and kind of historian of remote viewing as well, okay? And and he's got a real interest in UFOs, like a big-time interest, and, um, you know, kind of follows UA, UAP news and UFOs and blah, blah, blah. So, and I asked him about um, some of his, um, you know, tasks that he's been given over the years in terms of remote viewing different uh, cases as an example you know and it's very interesting but he said at one point um because of course we've got this situation whereby there's an understanding that uh craft and we'll go on to talk about you know baiting and capturing craft in a moment but mm-hmm. craft uh it, it's it's very difficult to find out how you can fly these things, okay? And one of the ideas is that you need to have a kind of symbiotic relationship with it. So a kind of non-human intelligence pilot would have some kind of relationship that can't be kind of duplicated by some, you know, technician or whatever. Um, And Daz says, or like a joke in the interview, they should get some remote viewers to try to fly the, you know, the craft. And lo and behold, of course, remote viewers, we find out through loose threads, have got a like integral part of the UAP story and like where we're at with understanding. Well, not not me, but where we think people are at with understanding UAPs. Um, and I'm just going to read out uh, a little bit of my notes here because something that really interested me was this. Um, uh, one of the people in uh, Loose Threads, uh, you talk about uh, SciTech, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the guy that runs SciTech, says that he's got this bank of 
um, remote viewers who are, um, you know, kind of technically skilled and can uh, understand machinery and how machinery works. And so they remote view craft. And he said this fascinating thing whereby um, he said basically a way of reverse engineering it is to go back and follow the craft back through time to the point where the their the construction of the craft makes sense to them yeah so the, the like you know you kind of come across this thing it's extraordinary we can talk about um is it Weygandt who talks about the kind of um the the organic nature of the craft in the uh, Stephen mm-hmm. Greer testimony which is fantastic mm-hmm. that you link that I watched today which is absolutely mm-hmm. extraordinary uh stuff that isn't it so you know this you, you know you kind of you come across this craft you're thinking what the heck is going on here you know it's like in, indescribable Weygandt described it as a work of art he described it as organic you know this indescribable although he has described it but like you know inconceivable uh thing in front of you and uh and it you know, how do you get to manufacture something like this? Well, the RVs had this question, and what the RVs did, the remote viewers did, was they they kind of went back through time, through our remote viewing, obviously, uh, to a mm-hmm. point where they could understand the the you know kind of the physics of it or the the mechanics of it. That's am I right in saying that that's basically in loose threads? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and um, really the SciTech guys. You're talking about uh, Major Ed Dames, who yeah. uh, was a member of the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group. Um, on his board, really, uh, you know, kind of the person who was um, it was Major Albert Stubblevine. Um, and so there were two transcripts that we found from I think it was in 1992, both of them, um, from conferences where um, uh, where uh, General Albert Stubblevine and Ed Dames had presented on um, remote viewing. Uh, and specifically there were sections where they they had a whole, I think Dames gave a, a whole um, separate, I think he actually gave two lectures and one of them was specifically about remote viewing UFOs. Um, now this is really extraordinary because it the remote viewing program was not declassified until 1995, excuse me. So they mm-hmm. are literally talking about um, you know, uh, technical, you know, stuff that they're not supposed to be talking about at this public conference. Um, that is, that is a, a, a conference for experiencers. Um, and, uh, you know, for people who experience, you know, anomalous phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, yes, they, uh, SciTech claims, right. Ed Dames claimed that they found a UFO site, um, that they found, uh, an area, um, and we believe that the area is probably um, near uh, the the Trinity site, the Trinity test site, um, which yeah. is uh, it's a, across the way from um, uh, from that range, and it's uh, also proximate to Kirtland as well. Um, and and so there was there's a lot of stuff in that area as well as um, I mean if you if you pull up a map and, and go on, I, I included it in, in loose threads, but you can see. Um, there are a lot of famous UFO cases, um, landing cases even, um, that are really centralized in that area. Um, and so they used remote viewing to identify this area. Um, and then they would go and they would try and, um, you know, view craft there in, in Jacques Vallée's 
journals. Uh, he talks about being taken to these UFO sites. Um, you know, so it does seem like something that was corroborated. It wasn't just something that Ed Dame said. Um, I, I don't know that that uh, outside of Dame's, we don't have anyone saying that they, um, you know, that this site was was that they were seeing stuff all the time there or anything like that. But we at least know that it's true that there were they were finding this and they were taking people up in Jeeps to go to this site and um, trying to remote view any craft um, that, you know, that were there. Um, and obviously, you don't have to go to the site to remote view a craft. It's remote viewing, right? You could uh, you could be sitting at the kitchen table at you know John Alexander's house, right, uh, talking about this site and and remote viewing it. And so yeah, it's it's not. There's some information that even if you had the craft sitting in front of you, as you alluded to, um, that you just can't get, right? You you can't necessarily um, determine the origin. You can't necessarily. You can maybe try and get some, you know very vague information about, well, it doesn't seem like it's human, right? Or it doesn't seem like it's from mm. any sort of human um, civilization that we're aware of, right? Uh, but there's just some stuff that you can't get. However, if you're able to remote view one of these craft while it's in operation, right? Um, while it is in, while you're, while it's actually, you know, um, traversing that, sp that space that they're watching, um, then maybe you can get some some really interesting information, right? Even if you had an intact craft, you're going to get some really cool information that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And like you said, these are technical remote viewers. These are guys that are, um, you know, uh, have engineering backgrounds. Um, they work in aviation. And so they're able to, um, you know, and so does the the person who's a monitor or the tasker. They're, you know, talking them through it. You know, tell me what direction does the plasma flow? You know, what kind of gate is this that you're seeing? And And so... There, you know, it's something that even if you and I were really great and gifted remote viewers, I wouldn't know what the heck I was looking at, you know, mm -hmm. um, whereas if I had an engineering, you know, really strong engineering background or something like that, I might be able to provide some information um, that was potentially useful. Now, one thing that I do think that's interesting is that Ron Blackburn, who we talked about previously, mm -hmm. has spoken about uh, the fact that he has um, you filed patents. I believe he's been awarded two patents. Um, and there are pictures in the patent, and I, we included these in loose threads, that show disc-shaped craft. And um, he claims that he did this by seeing videos of craft, that he was able to basically figure out how these, you know, really, uh, honestly, pretty exotic technologies that aren't still aren't mainstream to this day work um by just looking at videos of craft for, you know that he was shown videos and based on the videos that he was shown i guess in a classified setting that you know he was able to do this i kind of suggested that that seems a little far-fetched to me <laughs> and, and so uh, which i i think is kind of funny because i think that it's possible if they were remote viewing craft and you really needed technical information about the internal workings and mechanisms of the craft it doesn't seem like a video really gets you there um and so um you know that he's someone to watch he's still around um and he's given some some interesting interviews over the years um but uh he's it, it is interesting he is a lesser known name in the community even though he was very prominent you know uh, in the formation of the advanced theoretical physics working group which most people in the ufo community now are well aware of yeah one of the um questions i had for you later on but it might be um worth kind of flagging it up at the moment is um this question of in the last 
a couple of months since Loose Threads was released. Are there any things that you feel like you want people to focus on a bit more, um, like researchers, UFO researchers, to kind of like get their sleeves rolled up and, you know, start digging around? Um, because there's so much in Loose Threads. But that, I mean, I think you've just mentioned one of them right there. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things. And, um, you know, we were talking uh, off air about, um, you know, Jacques Vallée's Forbidden Signs Volume 5 just came out. Yeah. Um, and I haven't gotten my hands on it yet. My my uh, co-author Hermes, um, he has been tweeting the Hermetic Penetrator. He's been um, uh, tweeting just a massive thread because he got his in. I guess he got a uh, special treatment somehow and got <laughs> got his book earlier before anyone else. And so he has um, been doing just a, a tweet thread storm. And uh, it really does feel like a lot of the things that we were kind of nibbling around the edges of or the things that we were hinting at or um, suspecting, it, it just seems like uh, Forbidden Science Volume 5 really brings that together um, and fills in a lot of the gaps. And so I, I say this with a, a touch of hubris. I do think that um, loose threads serves as almost a, a, um, a prequel, right. Or a primer for someone, um, who, uh, you know, is wanting to read that because they're going to, I'm seeing other people are starting to get their books. It's becoming a big thing where everyone's, you know, posting about, oh my gosh, did you see this and this and this? And if you're looking at that and you're like, I have no idea what any of that is about, yeah. um, loose threads is, is free and it's something that will get you up to speed on a lot of these people and a lot of the things that were mentioned. Um, in particular, there are some things that, you know, we were kind of patting ourselves on the back about in, in choosing to include were um, statements about General John Sheehan, who um, was a, uh, a general in the Marine Corps, um, who basically uh, had some sort of program running underneath him. And not only that, he was also apparently the person who... Um, is referenced in the Wilson Davis notes as having found the programs before um, that Admiral Wilson relates to um, Dr. Eric Davis in their conversation that, um, you know, that when he talked to these corporate types, right, these three, um, you know, corporate yeah. people, when they actually found the reverse engineering program, that um, they said that they had, they had been discovered once before. And it caused a big issue. And that's really why they wanted to talk to him to find out how the heck he, you know, he found them. They were just mm -hmm. trying to rectify the security issue. And apparently the person who found them was General John Sheehan. Um, mm -hmm. And so we had that in loose threads. Um, and, and really, I have to we have to give credit to that to Grant Cameron, because Grant Cameron wrote about this and um, wrote about uh, about General John Sheehan. And, um, and Bobby Ray Inman, who we talked about, ex you know, uh, extensively in Loose Threads, mm -hmm. um, he wrote about that in his book, Managing Magic. And that was really curious to me because um, we knew that that Grant Cameron had uh, Oak Shannon's notes, which is where that, that uh, you know, at the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group meeting, they're talking about a reverse engineering program underneath um, Bobby Ray Inman. But there is no mention anywhere in the notes of John Sheehan uh, of, of that. And so we were like, well, where is he getting this information from? Um, and we better put it in there. We don't know, don't know, really know where it comes from. And yes, we found, you know, there's a picture in there of, of Colonel John Alexander and, and General Sheehan as well. And so I thought that was interesting. And so we made the decision to include that. And I'm glad we did um, mm. because it seems that uh, there is even more smoke 
from Sheehan than there was from Bobby Ray Inman. Um, and so I think really digging into who he is um, and, um, mm-hmm. and, and really uh, looking again, the Wilson Davis notes, right. They do, we just, they, things keep on going back to that. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like even, especially reading around the edges is where some of the most interesting information comes out where, um, you know, we talked about there being four separate programs that came out. Um, there were, they talked about that uh, Bernard Heisch, um, who is a, a physicist who had worked with uh, Dr. Hal Putoff. He was in this group kind of um, in and out of, of this, I wouldn't call him a member of the advanced theoretical physics working group, but certainly within the um, sphere of influence of, of people who were there in the, in later years. And, you know, he says, Hey, there are these four separate, but related UFO programs dealing with, you know, all sorts of things. And then you also, we, we put out an email that um, was included in a book um, from commander Will Miller, who is talking about four programs um, and the lists are different, right? The list that they give um, yeah. are, are dip, different, but sort of similar. And, and then in the Wilson Davis notes, you actually have where he says that he actually found three other programs that weren't this program and they pointed him to this program. And now just recently we're finding out that we're getting confirmation from Valet that all four programs were UFO programs. And so this number of four, you know, I know that's a very convoluted way to say we have like three different three different sources basically saying that, hey, you've got four um, related um, but separate UFO programs. And, and I believe also Jeremy Corbell has, has talked about that as well. Um, and, and I don't know if his source is, is different from the ones we've, uh, you know, we've discussed, but yeah, I mean, there's just so much, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of meat left on the bone for sure. Um, yeah, totally, and yeah. yeah, I mean, it, and that's the way, and that's, what's so fun about doing this kind of research is you think you're going to, you're uncovering it all. And then you find out, oh man, I'm only on the tip of the tip of the iceberg. There's still much more um, to find. Yeah. Just as a slight aside, I, I don't know what you think of this, Daniel. Um, mm-hmm. With Valet's um, journals, yeah, mm-hmm. do you think he has to go through some kind of clearance, like security clearance, before they're published? I know, I you don't, know it's just your opinion. Yeah, I, I I don't think so. Um, it does not seem, unless he is under unless he has personally been un- put, been put under an NDA, I don't think that him relaying what people told him in private conversations is uh, an issue. It might be an issue for them, but it, you know, if he's not, not per- under an NDA saying, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If he's, if he hasn't signed his life away to say, I will never talk about, you know, this program that was allegedly found, you know, by, um, Admiral Wilson and, and before him, General John Sheehan. And, you know, if if he's not going to get in trouble for that, yeah. um, that or, or rather if he, he hasn't agreed to not talk about that. And even Dr. Eric Davis, um, if he <laughs> was not officially read into that program, um, you know, I think a lot of it is about, you know, coordinating. I'm sure that he let people, I would think that he probably let, they're still close friends, you know, I, I gather um, all of these people. Um, yeah. I'm sure that he let them know, hey, by the way, I know you've been not talking and giving no comments on this. I'm planning on releasing this and it's going to talk about this. Um, and, you know, I think from what I understand, the only reason Dr. Eric Davis has not really uh, just openly, completely spilled the beans explicitly on 
the reality of that meeting is because he's still working and he's working for, you know, I think the aerospace corporation, I think now. Um, and they've told him that he can't talk about this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and so it's, it's not a, it's not a, I don't think it's an NDA thing for him. It's a, it's just a, Hey, I, I have to, <laughs> I got to put food on the table and keep a totally, roof over my yeah, head. And, totally, totally. And, and so well, that, that anyway. remarkable, um, interview that he gave to uh, Alexandra Rojas a, a while ago. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that is like in 2019. Deep. Oh, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's so outstanding. Yeah. And and you quote it in, in loose threads a little bit of it. Yeah. Um, liberally, liberally. It was yeah. hard to, to figure out what not to put. I was like, can I, we know, just, I, know. I was like, Hermes, can I just copy and paste this whole thing? He was like, no, we can't just copy and paste the whole thing. Cause it, it, it's so much. It's, it's so unbelievable, much. isn't it? It's absolutely. And, and of course, it was the same month, I believe, that um, um, Omni Talk Radio, Giuliano, um, you know, Marinkovic, that I think it was that month, that same month that he got his copy of the the Wilson Davis notes. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, Eric Davis was speaking about it, you know, basically, I mean, explicitly speaking about it, um, you know, without giving any names or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's definitely a really, really interesting interview. And we included... I, I don't think most of it, but a lot of it. Um, so if, if anybody has not gone back and actually listened to that interview, I, I encourage you to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put a link to it in, um, in the episode description. Um, so, so one uh, other area that I just uh, mentioned a moment ago is this, this question of baiting UAPs. Mm-hmm. And also maybe we could <clears throat> kind of fold in uh, a few thoughts about um, capture capturing UAPs and also uh, attracting them as well. So, for instance, well, we've got this extraordinary story of the Peru case, Hagant. Um, essentially, this the story there was that there was this this guy who, and now you link to uh, an interview that he gave or kind of testimony, if you like, that he mm-hmm. gave to um, Stephen uh, Greer, yeah? And mm-hmm. and that is such a remarkable um, uh, video. I just watched it earlier today. It's absolutely brilliant. It's only thirty minutes long, but essentially this 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 guy he was working for the. Um, I mean, I don't know why I'm telling this and not you, but you probably know it much better than me. Do you want to just quickly lay out the the kind of parameters of the sure Rue case, please? Sure. Yeah. So this is um, uh, Lance Corporal, I believe, um, at the time, Jonathan Wagant. And he is um, working for um, oh shoot I don't, I'm going to have to search up his his detachment what what he was uh, hold on but this is in Peru it's in 1997 yeah. um, and he basically was working um, as uh, let's see so he the, the really interesting thing about him is that he gives a lot of names right not just of him but also of the people that he um that he was working that, that he was working with so he was working on laser strike sorry that's what i was looking for um which is basically i think it, it had to do with like drug enforcement kind of stuff where they're yeah. trying to make sure that that to stop like cartels and you know all, all that sort of stuff and basically there was um, you know, he gets his crew basically gets called in like, Hey, you've got to go. There's been some kind of a crash or whatever. And so they all get, and they all, you know, get into their helicopter and they go right. Um, and they have to do a hike up a mountain and they get to this, 
site, this crash site. And he describes that, you know, it looks like basically a laser beam is just cut through the woods. Um, and, and now there's this um, tear shaped craft that is like lodged into the side of this cliff face. Um, and he, he talks about that it looks like there's some sort of damage to the rear of it. He actually draws a picture of it, um, mm. and, you know, almost like there was something kinetic that hit it, that it wasn't just a, a, a crash, if you will. Um, and so they're actually like going up to the craft. He, um, he even talks about that, um, you know, he can uh, feel that there are beings inside, right? That they're almost like telepathically communicating yeah, their yeah, pain yeah. with him, you know? And, yeah, that was extraordinary, um, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and so he, the, the really odd part, um, not very long after they get there and they're already on site, um, uh, an army Chinook uh, flies onto the other side of the cliff and out comes uh, these guys in hazmat suits. And it turns out that um, they are working with the DOE. And so, um, you know, they arrest him and they are, they arrest him. And I assume they arrest the other people who are with him and are really angry that they're not supposed to be there. And they're, they're, you know, cursing at him and threatening them. And um, mm. even saying, maybe we should just throw this guy out of the helicopter, mm. you know, um, and that'll be easier and everything. And, and so they interrogate him and, and basically tell him, you know, read him the right act. Tell them, you know, we can, um, you know, we operate, you know, we don't follow the Constitution. Mm. You know, we we go by our own rules, basically. We can do whatever we want. Um, and, you know, basically, don't talk about it or we'll kill you. You know, I mean, that's pretty much the, mm. the, mm. the bottom line. Um, mm. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is the temporal, you know, the it, it was not long before DOE was there, almost like they knew, right? Mm. They, they mm. were on site almost as immediately as as Wagant's team. Mm. Um, and so there's this kind of open question of, um, you know, how did they know? Like, how did, how did they know that that crash was going to happen and, and where they're on site um, in hazmat suits, like ready to roll, um, you know, and, and why DOE? And, and so there, there's just a, um, you know, sort of this, this open question of, you know, is, you know, are they involved not just in luring crap, but also downing crap potentially? And, yeah. and of course, this is around the same time and place as moment of contact. You know, mm. the um, you know the 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 other case that was in Brazil, um, and and so around the same you know area and around the same year, um, and so it's in in those that case is very similar to this one because you you have another case that is recovered by. Um, you know, U.S. forces in a foreign country um, very quickly after it comes down. And it appears on both cases that there's been some kind of kinetic damage of some mm. type mm. Um, to these crafts prior to them, you know, um, coming down on the ground. So it's it's just a very um, those two cases are very similar and very interesting um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but, yeah, the, that's kind of the the gist of the way gank case, but then also the. Yeah, moment totally. of contact yeah totally yeah and that virginia case they had they talked mm -hmm. about the virginia virginia mm -hmm. yeah they talked about the um uh, the white spoke coming down so the the possibility mm -hmm. of um well it, it, it opens up the question of are um various craft being uh targeted you know 
-hmm. and then it opens up where how do you um differentiate you know Mm -hmm. like why would you do that and under what circumstances would you have to kind of get something out of the air kind of quickly and Mm -hmm. deal with the, the you know the extraordinary chaos of cleanup operation even if it's in the middle of you know uh you know deepest peru or whatever of course mm-hmm. you are potentially going to get witnesses and all the rest of it you know and um you know virginia is like a a town with you know lots of people and so you know it it opens up these of course there's no we don't know the answer to that but it does make mm-hmm. you wonder you know what is going on there and also interestingly with the legant case um he was interrogated in am i right in saying that there was a, a radar station there Yes, and that he was brought yeah. to this radar station, and that's where yeah. he was kind of like really like thinking, you know, why are there people um, from China working in this Peruvian like radar station where the U.S. military has been asked to stop drugs going over the borders? You know, it's like it didn't really make sense for him why certain kind of person, like international personnel, had all gathered at this <laughs> at this um, radar station. The kind of story of like why they were there was to stop kind of drug trafficking, you know. So there's yeah, and and of course the, the deep mystery, and we see this, you know, time and time again, is the kind of immediate response of you know a a, a special team um, of individuals who, uh, you know, much like that, um, you know, the kind of zodiac group. What's that mm-hmm. thing as Sedge Masters? You know that? Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know these very these, relevant exactly yeah these guys turn up they do the job they like you know huff and puff and they get the hell out of there type thing mm-hmm. and it really does make you wonder you know what is going on um but but connected to the to the radar then we've got the guy hotel um memo from the 50s yeah mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. this is a really interesting uh you know uh, it was a memo written to hoover back in 1950 and essentially it said that he had been told that there were three um recovered craft is that right and that, yes and the, was it i can't quite remember the the actual you know the wording that hotel uses but essentially that they they were kind of suspecting that radar had some kind of influence in them crash landing yeah, that's correct. Yeah. It, so he says, I've got the quote here. Um, uh-huh. He says, according to my informant, the saucers were found in New Mexico due to the fact that the government has a very high powered radar set up in that area. And it is believed the radar interferes with the controlling mechanisms of the saucers. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, like, um, you know, a- again, uh, you know, what what is an accident? What is controlled? Mm-hmm. Um, this question then you talk about, so there's, so there's various, um, in this area of, um, kind of capture and baiting and, mm-hmm. uh, attracting UAPs, you talk about radar, you talk about anti-neutrinos and you talk about three gigahertz. Okay. Mm-hmm. So is there anything more you want to say about radar before I kind of go on? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just, just, you know, sort of. Um, dovetailing off your point there, I, I think that my speculation is that the early crashes were not intentional. Um, they were not 
bringing down craft. I don't believe they were bringing down craft in, you know, the 1930s and 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's, it was probably more of like a, a, an accident where something happens and you're like, whoa, what, what is this? And how did this happen? And, and, and then maybe you're able to reverse engineer that process and find out, oh, maybe it is that we can use, you know, this radar system, or maybe it, we can use, um, you know, this to bring these down. Um, and, yeah. and so I think that probably, that might've happened with radar, um, with that specifically that three gigahertz um, radar frequency that was being used for um, radar bomb scoring at the time um, in those areas. Uh, and, and the reason why that three, three gigahertz number is so important is because um, there was a really famous UFO case um, mm. in the 1950s um, that was investigated by James McDonald. Um, and basically, this case is sort of similar, it seems like, to the Tic Tac case we're finding out, um, because you have a craft that is being followed by, um, or is that, or at least is um operating in the area of uh, a plane that has electronic countermeasures on it um and so it is able to um, basically pick up radio signatures and and um and emissions and things like that that are being um emitted by the craft and there was a three gigahertz um signature associated with this craft um that the people who um, picked it up, thought was very, very similar to ground-based radars that they were familiar with at the time. Um, and in fact, at first they thought maybe it was a ground-based radar, but the problem is, is that the, you know, whenever the craft would move away, the frequency would move away. And whenever the craft would come closer, the frequency would come closer. So that they were able to determine that it was um, correlated with the craft. And so um, there, you know, just sort of based on that, there's some speculation if you combine that with the, the HODL memo kind of putting two and two together that if you have this emission right these crafted emission uh, uh you know emit three gigahertz um, frequencies and then you also have um you know ground-based powerful ground-based radars um you know used at that time and in those places for radar bomb scoring activities emitting the same frequency and then you also have HODL that's just saying hey it's possible that these radar interfered with the um with the craft and the reason why that three gigahertz thing came up too is because it shows up in Oak Shannon's notes that they were talking about that mm-hmm. um, at the advanced theoretical physics working group meetings in 1985. And then in the most, not the most recent report that we got, but the UAPTF report that we got mm-hmm. in, um, I think it was 2021, yeah. they also report that in some of their most interesting cases that there were radio frequencies picked up associated with these craft. And, uh, you know, there's actually been someone who was on the, the Hawkeye, mm. um, uh, Hughes, PJ Hughes, mm. who's been talking about that um, as much as he can, you know, without, you know, getting into into hot water from NDAs and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Who's been, you know, who was there at the time, who's been sort of not talking about the specifics of the frequency, but at least saying, yes, they are, they picked up radio frequencies associated with the craft too. So um, that was the Nimitz With, case, with the Tic Tac. That's the Nimitz yeah. incident. And so- yeah. You know, there's some of these things that start back, you know, in the 50s or they start back in 19 in the 40s and that connect all the way up to where we are today. Now, do am I saying that the Tic Tac was emitting three gigahertz, you know, frequencies? Probably not. But it's just the idea that, you know, that that you could have that you could pick up these sort of frequencies associated with a crab. Um, 
you know, now three gigahertz is is um, not a um, I believe that's X band radar, and so it's it's used a lot of uh, in meteorology. Um, uh, that's usually an X band radar. However, there is um, I believe um, there is uh, the strike the carrier strike group has a system that utilizes a three gigahertz um, radar system as well. Um, uh, it, it, and I think it, it's part of the, oh shoot, I'm, I'm blanking here. What is it called? The, um, I'll, I'll pull it up in a minute, but yeah, yeah. like they, they use three gigahertz, three gigahertz radar, um, you know, today and it's, it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place now, but in 1947, it's, you know, it's possible that it wasn't. And so some people, when they hear that, they like, oh, so you're gonna tell me there's this really super advanced craft that, you know, can't even handle radar. Um, well, I mean, in 19, before that era, right, before the, the World War II and kind of the post-war era, like how much radar did they really have to contend with? You know, mm. um, I think we've kind of got this idea in our heads that um, basically alien technology, if, if, if that is in fact what we're talking about here, um, you know, that it, that it just doesn't change, that it's just static. And mm. so, um, you know, unless we see something with tic-tac-like abilities in 1940s, then, you know, um then then it's it's all for naught and so i think that it's possible that they change their technology and maybe they change their technology um when they have to and when they need to yeah in, in order response. to keep up with us Quickly, <laughs> i mean yeah. i i don't see why it wasn't an issue before right this the, the cavemen and the you know uh didn't have radar so they didn't have to worry about it but you know once they're once they now have to contend with all of these um you know, frequencies being blasted into the airwaves. Well, now then, yes, they have to come up with, you know, new ways to do what they do and to stay safe. I mean, we have to do that, right? There's a, um, you know, there we have, uh, you know, there are people who that's their whole job is to make sure that this new piece of equipment is going to work um, in conjunction with all of these others based on what it emits and and that everything's going to be okay so that you and I can, you know, uh, get on board an airplane and know that, you know, the Wi-Fi is not going to like, you know, take yeah. us out <laughs> <laughs> immediately open the doors yeah um and those bouncy uh slides get popped out that's right that's right um always looks fun though you know like if i was in a plane crash at least i think every cloud has a silver lining at least i can go down the bouncy slide you know that's true yeah if you're gonna go if you if you know the plane is going down i say pop those hatches open and let's just have fun with it. You know, exactly. like, why are we going to wait for the fireball at the end? I mean, I'm sure that's not where your head is at. Maybe the G's keep you in your seat and you can't get out. Um, but Maybe. yeah, it would be nice to have that choice. Like, hey, the plane is about to go down in a fiery, you know, in a fireball. Would you like to jump out of the plane instead and have fun for the last, you know, 10 minutes of your life? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd, cool. I'd definitely do that. Now, yeah. um, anti-neutrinos now, anti-neutrinos. Mm -hmm. um, you you contain or sorry include in loose threads this extraordinary worldwide anti neutrino map, which mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, first of all, though, um, an anti neutrino is basically a a, a, a kind of um, the negative of a neutrino. Yeah, so it gets yes. popped out when a neutrino gets popped out. Uh, an anti-neutrino gets popped out as well, okay? Correct. And it has, has very little mass, and it can essentially kind of go through anything. Is that essentially what an anti-neutrino is, Doctor? Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, that, from my under, from my very limited understanding, yes, that is, what, physics. that is what it is. Yes, <laughs> Doctor Physics. It is okay. That's good. So, so, um, a couple of like you, you know, you write about this in loose threads, and essentially, there's this idea that um, a way of uh, detecting UAPs. Now, you know, obviously, interrupt me if I get this wrong, but a way of interact of um, detecting UAPs is to search for high amounts of anti-neutrinos okay mm -hmm. now is it the case so this is a i've got a couple of questions about this okay is it the case that say like a nuclear um like say like a, a, a nuclear power station as an example yeah mm -hmm. would that have lots of anti-neutrinos like in it or around it or whatever yes okay. yes and so any other kind of like military nuclear um, connected base or site would also have lots of anti neutrinos around it. Yes, yeah, that map that's that's there. It gives you the world the the kind of worldwide view, um, but it's not probably granular enough to yeah. really see. It, it's enough to see like where there are uh, you know um, nuclear facilities and things great, like that. Great that... swathes of um, you right. Know, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's not like it's it's not like Google Maps, is it? It's not like street no, to street. I wish that would be yeah. amazing. And if they come <laughs> out with that, I will buy a subscription. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So so now here's my next question about this. Uh, say there's a UAP like in my garden. Okay, which I don't, mm -hmm. don't think there is, but say there was. Would there okay. be lots of anti neutrinos around that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so you know. I think that initially that that is kind of like the speculation that perhaps the antineutrinos are related to, um, you know, that, that they're, they're some sort of a byproduct of the propulsion system, yeah. um, you know, that, that we're looking at craft using um, some sort of fusion technology. Um, and, and even with fusion, there's, there are ways to catalyze fusion reactions um, using antineutrinos. Um, and so it's possible that we're seeing um, sort of the remnants of the exhaust, if you will. And it's like the exhaust hangs around for a while. It doesn't just dissipate immediately into the, into the atmosphere. And so if you are seeing a place, especially out in the middle of the ocean or someplace that's really remote, where there's a high concentration of antineutrinos or in your garden, for instance, and you yeah. know that there's not, you know, an, uh, some sort of uranium mine, you know, underneath your, your, uh, your veg patch, I guess, um, yeah. then, then, you know, you know, like, Hey, what's going on here? Like, what, what is that doing there? Um, and it's, and so the way that the people who've talked about this is, is almost as like a fishing metaphor that if you're going to look for UFOs, you should look in places where they're probably going to be. So like a, a honey hole or a hot spot, and that antineutrinos are sort of a way, um, are, are sort of a way to find that. And so if you, if you, for instance, let's just say hypothetically out in the middle of the Atlantic, there's some spot, some area, let's say it's a mile wide where you see this consistent anti-neutrino, you know, signature. And so your first thing is to say, okay, well, um, let's go and check there, make sure that there aren't any nuclear assets over there that we don't know about. Right. So is there a, you know, a sub that's hidden that, that maybe is it, you know, emitting anti-neutrinos, um, no, there's not. Okay, well, is there a, 
you know, um, a discarded nuclear weapon somehow that is, you know, resting on the bottom or is there, you know, how is this happening? And if you can't come up with a reason, well, maybe there's some other reason um, for that, um, you know, for that hotspot to be there. One thing that I, that I think is really interesting that I've come across recently is um, Joe McMonagle is, he's a remote viewer mm. and a very famous remote viewer, remote viewer 001. And um, he's someone that we write about in Loose Threads because he was a, a UFO experiencer. Um, yeah. And and uh, he's been studied in, in some UFO experiencer studies. Um, in his book, Mind Trek, and this is an early book um, about remote viewing, um, he writes about being targeted to um, nuclear, um, to, to like, to, to, to actually the first one he talks about is being, targeted to view the the trinity explosion so the the first testing of you know nuclear weapons at the trinity site and he's there at the site and as soon as this the explosion happens right his consciousness is like snapped he calls it a snap to a uh, um to a location that's further away so that he can see the 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 explosion and he's not able to go further almost as if it wasn't allowed Right. Like he wasn't allowed to look. And, and he talks about this snap happening more, you know, uh, more than once. And even in, in um, like nuclear facilities um, where he's clearly looking at fuel rods, you know, that are, I guess, doing their fuel rod thing. And he gets snapped almost like whatever is happening there is um, he's being protected from it. Like it's, it's almost like even with even just your consciousness, if that is what's happening during remote viewing, that your consciousness is traveling right to another place in time and space, mm-hmm. that that is, that it's dangerous. Right. Um, however, that being said, he also says that nuclear explosions and nuclear facilities and, and high, high energy, high, like the, those things are really, really good targets for remote viewing. Um, that they are, that he was especially gifted at viewing those, but that they are also just in generally, more generally, very easy to view. Mm. Um, and he likens this because this has something to do with there being a lot of information basically happening at the same point. So you have a lot of that high energy basically is equals high information, talking about like information theory, right? Where there are all mm-hmm. of these things that are happening um, at once. And because of that, it just is like a beacon for a remote viewer. Mm. And so mm. um, bringing all this home, the reason why I went on that aside is because I, I do wonder if um, the same thing that makes it a, a really interesting target for a remote viewer also makes it an interesting target for UFOs. Mm. And so maybe the anti-neutrino neutrino thing, it could be a uh, associated with the craft and with the propulsion system. And I think it probably still is, but there's also the possibility that maybe um, the anti-neutrinos are what are bringing, you know, are, are making that area light up for the, the others themselves for NHI yeah. to say, Absolutely, Hey, this is really yeah. interesting. I'm going to go here. And yeah, it's almost yeah, like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. it's something they have to think about. It's just like, it's this some sort of automated response system. I'm, almost like an AI that just when something like that happens, this high information event, right. It just like they get snapped and they just appear on site. And, and, and so it may look like, well, that, you know, this is coming from the craft, but in reality, it's really coming because, well, there, for whatever reason, maybe there is a nuclear sub or there's something that's emitting all of this, um, you know, uh, these neutrinos and anti-neutrinos and, and they suddenly appear. 
um, because it's it's this, you know, they're they're drawn into the information, if you will. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. So anyway, I, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, that something that I came across recently. It's a very old book, Mind Truck is, but uh, it's got it's got a lot of really interesting stuff, especially knowing that Joe McMonagle was, um, you know, involved in you know the experiencer study that that Dr. Kit Green. Um, he's one of his earlier yeah, yeah, patients yeah, 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 in yeah, terms yeah. of like collecting his information. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just all weaves. It, it's really crazy how something like that can weave into current day, you know, Lou Elizondo's, uh, you know, uh, I don't think he said anything about antineutrinos, but he has said that basically if you can find one thing, you then you can find them, right? You only need to track one thing. And there's yeah. been some speculation that perhaps that one thing is antineutrinos. But okay, um, so, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so, so you covered a lot of ground there um yeah the, the, first of all the um experiences i've got a list of them okay so we'll, we'll talk about them in a minute but also okay. the the other thing about the anti neutrinos is now i wonder because this is it was absolutely amazing what you said there mm -hmm. and i and i i totally agree but i wonder imagine if you just kind of flip the situation okay mm -hmm. imagine from a um you know non-human intelligence point of view that we are there i mean you could argue against this you could just go with it you know for mm -hmm. a few few moments will you indulge an old man um we are there uh shadow biosphere okay and the you know what one of the few things that pierce through is uh high amounts of anti-neutrinos around ua around um nuclear sites and you know, mm -hmm. like nuclear power stations and things, and you know, of course, the other thing that pierces through are uh, our experiences and people that have access to, um, you know, the field as it's as it's known mm -hmm. these days. You know, so how about that? That's a good idea, isn't it? Uh? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I, I, I... okay, everyone, you can go home. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> We've all solved UFOs. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good, I think that that's a, I'm, I'm open to that. I think that that's a, a good possibility as well. Um, you know, the other thing is that you could almost combine that and say that, you know, the snap, maybe what's dangerous to us is also dangerous to them too. Yeah. Um, what's dangerous to our consciousness might be dangerous to, to them as well, even with their advanced technology. And so that, that high information, um, you know, event that draws them in, um, you know, might be drawing them in because they're like, hey, this is a problem for us. You know, it's right. a problem for you too, but it's a problem for us. Totally, um, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I really like what you're doing there though with the, with the shadow biosphere and um, <laughs> us kind of being on the on the opposite spectrum there. I think that that's really a, an interesting place to go with it and thinking of ourselves as um, the, you know, the others, you know, in, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always like to call myself another. Because I'm such oh, a big yeah, Lost you... fan. Do you, do you remember Lost? Do you, do oh, you yeah. Love Lost? it. Love yeah. it. I even love the ending. That's the most controversial thing I'll say. Oh, mate. I love the ending I, of I loved. I totally loved the ending. It was fantastic. Yeah. But what about the epilogue? Did you see the epilogue with, um, uh, what's his name, in the factory? So. Oh, have you never seen that? With, Maybe um, I might not have. Who's the guy with the little glasses? You know, the, the, the main, one of the main characters. The funny fellow with the little glasses who first oh. comes down in the hot air balloon. Yeah. Um, do you remember? He's I, like the leader of the lot of the others. I can't, it got so long ago. I don't remember. The I don't remember his name. name but I know Michael. who you're. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, you know, oh, Ben. Ben, of course. Ben, ben. There you go. Yeah. How can we forget Ben? 
Ben, they did this epilogue after, like, a, I think maybe a year after or whatever, the show ended. And it's basically Ben in a factory, where, like a um, that that group that ran the uh, island. I can't remember what they were called now. Um, began with K. The I Dharma think. Initiative. Oh yeah, that doesn't. That's not K, is it? It's D. <laughs> the Dharma Initiative. Yeah. yeah. So they they had the job of like labeling all of the cans <laughs> that were then airdropped, you know, to the island, like once a year or whatever. And Ben like turned like gave them their P forty fives or whatever, which is their unemployment papers, um, in Britain. Something like that, anyway. It's probably not worth seeing. But anyway, Lost is fantastic. And um, moving on, <laughs> moving on from that, um, I was wondering. Oh, there's another thing. Just by the way, is it true that Christopher Nolan, because you know he's making this Hoffenheimer, is it true that he had to be spoken out as like kind of talked down from creating an actual nuclear explosion for the film? Is oh, that true? I I haven't heard that. I think we should no, start I... that rumor right now. Because he's yeah. like, you know, he loves to do things like in camera and he's famous for that, isn't he? I can just imagine that a, a producer would have to say, sorry, Chris, you know, you're important to us, but you can't actually do a nuclear explosion. So um, anyway, so, that, that, so that's neutrinos. I think we've so, sorted that out, anti-neutrinos. Now, one thing that's really interesting, you, you've just mentioned this actually, is that so there's this um the the experiences and this this question of um you know what is it that uh is about particular people why do particular people attract paranormal phenomena okay like do the question is do they and if they do the what is it about them and in terms of uh remote viewers um you know, it was looked into, wasn't it? Like uh, Kit Green looked into mm -hmm. it. Okay, I've got this little quote here, actually, from, from Loose Threads. So um, this is um, Chris Green. This is Christopher Green, who's kind of commonly known mm -hmm. as Kit Green talking. Dr. Kit Green, he talks about um, uh, some of the experiments with Yuri Geller, Pat Weiss's experiments. Um, they, they, these viewers were not average human beings. They were much smarter than the average human being. I looked at their blood tests, their genetic tests, their IQ tests, their neurological tests, and their cardiovascular tests, which has a lot to do with endocrinology, which I'm not sure what that is. Is that to do with um, the... Uh... It's to do with uh, the white blood cells. Right, and, okay. Uh, like the endocrine system, yeah. Uh, yep, yep, yep. I concluded that these people are abnormal. In Green's assessment, that was an indicator of why they were so good at remote viewing. So there, there's something about about these these folk, their kind of biology essentially, which means that mm -hmm. they're excellent at remote viewing. Okay, and then linking that on to the work that has been done, the blood collected from some you know key people in the kind of world of experiences, Chris Bledsoe, Chris Bledsoe, Whitley Strieber. Um, one of the John Burroughs, but John Burroughs, yeah, from Rendlesham. Uh, Dr. Eric Davis, in that amazing interview with um, mm -hmm. with Alessandro, he talks about how he gave his blood, wasn't he? And he was like mm -hmm. the Skinwalker Ranch time that he spent at that ranch. He it seems like he was attracting some unusual phenomena. Jim Semivan, mm -hmm. and is it true that um, uh, the remote viewer that you were just talking about is included in this group as well? Is that 
Yeah. Yeah, Joe McMonagall. Yeah. McMonagall. Yeah. Okay. So that's um that's really interesting. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that and like maybe you know what what is going on there basically like what is the um research taking place as far as you know or think in terms of you know kind of understanding the the ways that these uh experiences like you know their biology sure um so the, the first thing to understand is that this has been an open question for a very long time um and even dating back into the 1970s um, this is something that, excuse me, that Jacques Vallée was brought onto, um, was brought into SRI for the remote viewing program. Um, he was brought into as the consultant to kind of look at this issue, um, to look at the UFO connection between the remote viewers, their best remote viewers, and UFO experiences. Um, and so, you know, my guess would be that it probably wasn't just one person that had those UFO experiences, um, uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so... This is something that, and we know that, that like there are very um, mainstream or, or, or very well-known remote viewers who were also UFO experiencers. And so it's always this sort of, um, is it the chicken or the egg kind of mm. um, thing that's going on? But that that association between those, that correlation between the two has been studied for a very long time um, by the CIA. Um, you know, Dr. Kate Green at the time mm-hmm. was a CIA contract monitor. Um, he left eventually, I think it was in 85, he left. Um, and went private, but he was still affiliated with the CIA, and and I think probably has been for you know uh, for a for a very long time. And you know this is something where uh, you know they're 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 looking at this from the perspective of yes, let let's look at your blood. Um, there's been a lot of talk about um, that you you mentioned the endocrine system um, about the immune system. Um, yeah. as, as sort of a recording device, right, for trauma in the body, but possibly even, you know, having its own brain, if you will, or its own um, ability to, um, you know, to, to kind of track and basically give you this, have this internal system. And so I'm not sure if that's related to um, the, the endocrine system itself, if it's related to um, anomalous experiences, but it's more just a way, a reporting mechanism, maybe like a way that they can extract information about the phenomenon from the physical bodies of, you know, uh, experiencers of anomalous phenomena. And so they, they take blood, um, you know, and they, I think that there's something probably related to DNA, um, that they've been looking at to, to figure out, um, you know, what's, what's the relationship between particular markers and, um, um, you know, UFO experiencers, but I think that I think it probably also really branches into paranormal phenomena and paranormal experiences. Um, you know, one of the things that the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group, there were handouts that that um, were provided by researcher Melinda Leslie from uh, Jack Houck, who is um, mm-hmm. uh, a, a big member of the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group, and um, one of the action items was to develop reliable paranormal performance, high-tech, reliable paranormal performance. Um, And so I think that that is something that they are still working on. Um, And I think that that is something that um, is, uh, you know, has been a long-standing goal. Um, And and paranormal performance, you could could classify that in a lot of different ways, right? Like, I think that um, remote viewing 
is a very practical paranormal performance. Imagine that you could take a pill um, or do a particular protocol that takes, you know, 20 minutes or um, perhaps do some, some combination of, you know, you, there might be some biofeedback, you might have some stimulation of the brain in certain areas. Um, but imagine that you could reliably get into a remote viewing state, um, that it wasn't something that was like, oh, well, I wonder if he's on or off today. But like, if we do these things, even if it takes 30 minutes in the right combination, we know that we can put you into the perfect state of consciousness for remote viewing. That would be a pretty incredibly, I mean, that's like the holy grail of, of um, an intelligence tool. And so I think that it starts there. I also think that there's, um, you know, is uh, baiting UFOs, you know, getting UFOs to come in. Is that a, you know, a paranormal performance? Um, yeah, I think that if you could reliably, um, if you could put someone into the perfect state of mind, and it might be the state of mind very close to a remote viewing state of mind, mm. um, you know, that state of consciousness, if you could reliably get someone in a space that turns them into, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know, like the lighthouse, right? Um, lighthouses in the dark, if you will, to, to borrow a term from my co-author Hermes. Um, then would that be something that you want to do? Well, yeah, if you want to know about UFOs and you have a reliable way to bring them in, maybe you can communicate with them. Um, you know, that's something that we explored as well is the communication um, aspect of remote viewing. You know, that, that um, you know, it, there are certain forms of remote viewing, you know, like CE5 and, um, and HICE um, mm. contact protocols that um, are a form, a, a different form of remote viewing. Um, and it, in fact, you know, we referenced Dr. Stephen Greer has uh, talked about them as remote vectoring and remote viewing, right? That there's RB2 was kind of his alternate way of, of calling his CE5. But then there's, there's other stuff too. Like, um, you know, one of the big things that the Monroe Institute looked at, Robert Monroe, was out-of-body experiences. You know, I have three books on my bookshelf and they're almost all of them were about, you know, journeys out of the body. Mm. Um, and, you know, the Monroe Institute was, um, you know, actually Albert Stubblebine and John Alexander were working with the, you know, on behalf of the army, were working with the Monroe Institute for a period of time, trying to develop these protocols so they can turn any average soldier into a remote viewer. Yeah. Um, and that is something that it seems that Dr. Kit Green, um, who was again, working for the CIA at the time, um, was, uh, kind of working to stifle that he did not want them to take the, every person can be a remote viewer path. He wanted everybody to be very focused on, we need to figure out who are the rock star remote viewers, what's special and unique about them. Um, and let's pour all of our money into that rather than trying to like develop a protocol. Um, but I, I think that 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 is something that's still happening there there's the work of um uh dr colm kelleher who is um you know we mentioned a little bit as mm -hmm. well who's um works has worked with uh bob bigelow for a very long time with bass and with nids i'm sorry with nids and then and then with allsat bass um and he's an immunologist right um and he's talked about something called the hitchhiker effect um which Basically, when you experience a weird thing or anomalous phenomena, often that can almost act as like a, a viral. Um, you could almost model the spread of it using virology to see how it how it spreads, you know, um, to people that you come into contact with and who they come into contact with. Um, and so, you know, we know that, you know, Dr. Uh, Kelleher and um, Dr. Kit Green are, you know, also working with now Dr. Gary Nolan. And and so. Um, you know, there have been some 
some uh, things, some buzz lately, he's denied it, which I, I understand if he has, and, and maybe we should take that at face value. Um, but that that he's working to develop some sort of way to turn on and turn off whatever it is that causes anomalous experiences, some sort of a drug. Um, and and I, I do know that he has speculatively talked about that, um, you know, in, in other interviews, but he, he did. He also denied that that he's currently like that they're working on that. Um, but if he's not working on it, I'm almost certain that there are other people who are, um, that, that, yeah. that high tech, reliable paranormal performance, that that is a, um, you know, I mean, that's like a Holy grail capability and it's a, you know, it's, it, they know that these things exist. Now they just need to be able to have a better control over them. And it wouldn't surprise me, honestly, if they've already developed all that stuff. And now maybe what they're trying to do is to make it more efficient, make it more, compact maybe instead of having you know five things attached to you only need one thing attached to you maybe you just need to take one one drug and that will that will get you there um but i i that's that's a you know you asked me earlier things that people should focus on in loose starts i think that that's a really big piece that that um reliable paranormal it's called it's par reliable high-tech paranormal performance mm -hmm. um and and i think that that's still something that's very much um i think that it might be one of the reasons for the experiencer study um you know not just because these are people who for whatever reason are able to get into these states of consciousness um you know where they experience these anomalous experiences and vector in whatever it is is looking for beings that can you know uh, for for humans that can see them and interact with them they're able to get there quicker um you know another big piece to that is near-death experiences um, and, you know, Joe McMonigle had near death experience. That's what sort of launched his sort of weird, the weird aspect of his of his whole life. Um, you know, uh, Rob, uh, Bob Monroe, also same thing. He was very he's talked about how uh, he just he said that whenever they whenever he was created, they must have left the, the, the last peg out because he was able to just kind of slip out of his body really quickly and get into that state of consciousness very easily. Um, and so. Uh, you know, that that really brings um, John Alexander's focus into it as well, because, you know, he he has a Ph.D. in the study of death, thanatology, um, and um, he actually uh, would not have met Bob Bigelow if it were not for him giving. Uh, I, I believe that that Bigelow was at a um, at a talk of his that was about near death experiences, that that if there's one thing. That Colonel Alexander is, is maybe more interested in near-death experiences than he has UFO experiences. Um, mm. And and even in other interviews that he's given, you know, there was an interview that we were listening to for doing Loose Threads research with Bob McGuire, and he wanted to know about Bob McGuire's near-death experience. Um, and at first we thought he was asking him about his, his NDA, but he was asking him about his NDE. Uh, and so I think that, that all of those things these altered states of consciousness, because I believe that's what they are. Mm. Um, you know, I think that that being able to reliably get to those places to turn those off, to turn them on is, is really key. And so I, I, I encourage everybody to not look at one as main or primary and the other as a sideshow or something, mm. but that mm. they're all, they're all very intimately related. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, th that's what Jay Christopher King always says. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, to quote Jay Christopher King, absolutely. 
But I absolutely agree with you because I, I get really frustrated about the, um, you know, you talk about oh, the, the, the um, compartmentalization of UAP research. What about our silos? You know, we silo the research so much, not you, and I don't do any research, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the kind of um, UAP world, you know, and I'm fascinated by um, NDEs as an example, you know. I'm really, really fascinated by remote viewing. And the connections between these things are, I mean, essentially, there are multiple ways of uh, accessing the field. And some ways mm -hmm. are, you know, uh, easier than others, you know. And I'm a big fan of the OA. Do you know the OA? Have you ever seen the OA? It's a television no, show. No, the show? Netflix I haven't show, seen yeah. it now. Yeah, oh, right. but okay, I, I know what you're talking oh. about. <laughs> okay, spoiler alert. Anyway, it's very good. Um uh, moving on, moving on. I'm reviewing it in a few weeks. Um, so, but you're absolutely right that, you know, the interconnectedness of this, I think that is one of the things, if I was to say, you know, let's look into this, it's to to really start to uh, draw comparisons between the experiences that different people have under different uh, kind of ways of accessing this field. And um, going on to that then, we uh, it's just reminded me about uh, the Rendlesham guy, um, John Burroughs, he was advised to do a very particular kind of um, yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say, just uh, say something quickly about that, please? Yeah, so um, basically, uh, John Burroughs, yes, he was one of the, the main people involved with the Rendlesham Forest case, which I'm sure your listeners are, are really familiar with. Um, but he was contacted um, by Hal Putoff and by Kit Green. And he was actually taken to um, Earth Tech. And um, he was basically instructed that, um, you know, to, to try uh, a couple of different things. So to practice Kripalu Yoga and Vipassana meditation. Um, and Vipassana meditation is, I think a lot of people will be uh, familiar with that, but Kripalu Yoga is just a, a form of yoga and, and um, he was basically just told like, hey, you need to do this. And um, he never got any kind of an answer on why he needed to do that. He just needed to work on it. That's what they told him. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, it's it's one where then later on he is, you know, taken out um, to the desert and basically does, um, you know, uh, does a contact, you know, kind of like a CE5 type of um, uh activity where he they're trying to to bring in craft and see if his presence brings them in and mm -hmm. he doesn't even do he he ends up not even doing um uh the meditation beforehand but they mm -hmm. still have success and the person that he's with tells him i'm surprised you're not already on on the inside of the government working on this um <laughs> because there is all this person was apparently aware of or affiliated with you know this study that's being done and it's probably in relation to um, DARPA, right? Um, you know, John Alexander um, has talked about, uh, there have been, he has and other, well, he hasn't, but other people have talked about that he uh, has taken um, samples and videos and things of their testimony and mm. taken them back to DARPA. Um, but in this case, everybody was involved in getting John Burroughs to give his, um, you know, to give his DNA and mm. to, you know, kind of cooperate with this effort, um, including, um, I mean, all the people we've been talking about, uh, John Alexander, um, it was involved. Um, you know, you have Kit Green was, was involved. 
um, Gary Nolan was flown down on an airplane to go and, and try and convince him to to do this. And the reason he eventually caved and did it is because um, Kit Green uh, kind of pulled some strings and got him some help from the VA that he was not able to get because his medical records were classified. Uh -huh. um, and so he's one of the only people who, in fact, Kit Green made this post that we that we, you know, talked about in Loose Threads as well um, on the above top secret form at one point saying that it was one of the only people that he can like that he's that his medical records were classified that like that never happens and that he should he should have been able to get access to them and he wasn't um, and that there are probably still parts of his medical records that are still classified. So um, so, yeah, there's this there's this, um, you know, this connection apparently between these types of, you know, contemplative practices mm. um, and getting into the, the proper headspace for contact work. Um, and, yeah. you know, that, that makes sense to me from a, you know, um, a standpoint of, you know, when you meditate, when you do these kinds of things, um, you know, you are changing your brain's physiology, you know, mm. over time and, and little by little, you're changing, the more you do it over the span of your life, um, you know, it, 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 it actually literally changes the physiology of your brain. Um, and so, um, you know, new connections are made, old connections are severed. And it's possible that in doing this, maybe your brain becomes a, a better interface for consciousness or particular states of consciousness that are harder to access otherwise. Um, mm. And, and so that doing and practicing these things, um, you know, there was a, a study that we linked to um, that, that, you know, talks about some of that stuff as well. Um, there's also a book that I would recommend for, for people who are interested in how those um, practices can change your brain. And it's called Altered Traits. Um, and it's written, it's all research. It's basically a big literature review about all of these, you know, different, um, all of these different types of meditation and mm -hmm. the impact it has on your body and on your brain um, and, and on your way of being in the world. So, um, but yeah, that, that was a very interesting tidbit that, that Burroughs kind of gave there with, with those specifics about those types of practices for contact work. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'm at the moment I'm reading this, um, this book by uh, this remote viewer based in Britain, Daz, Daz Smith. The book is called mm -hmm. Surfing the psychic internet and it's about how he um uh he was part of this medium circle um when he was much younger and it's just is extraordinary absolutely um you know literally out of the out of this world adventures that he had but he then came to and settled on um remote viewing because all that was he, he described that as chaotic yeah, and kind of too chaotic for him. But with remote yeah. viewing, there's a there's a um, control essentially. He's a lot more in control with it, you know, um, which is really interesting. And I've just found that book, by the way, that you mentioned. So I'll put a link to to that in the uh, episode description. Um, so one other thing, just before we uh, kind of wrap up here, because we've been thank you so much for being so generous with your time, Daniel. It's I really appreciate it. Um, and like I said before, <laughs> like I said before, I wasn't joking that we could kind of talk about it for, for ages, but, but let, let, let's, um, just wrap up, um, slowly, slowly wrap up here because I still have got a massive mm -hmm. list of questions, but one thing that I, I, um, noticing in loose threads 
and maybe you can kind of um, elaborate maybe you know with your own kind of understanding and kind of research experience like sites of interest places where you know you keep on seeing stuff happen you spoke early on about um you know white sands the white sands area and that kind of general area mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of fascinating things happening from a uap perspective and then of mm -hmm. course we've got catalina island of california mm -hmm. and then so th those two and maybe are there any others that you want to kind of like you know zoom in on as like a, as places where you know these are the hot spots if you like uh yeah i mean um we also have um off the, the 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 east coast as well, there appear to be there appears to be a hot spot, um, kind of in the area of um, sort of where um, kind of the northeast. There seems to be some some spots, and, and I think there are lots. I think there I think really um, there's a lot of water. <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of uh, hot spots over water. At least or at least that's what we're getting reports from. Maybe recently because of the yeah. the navy becoming so open on this, so that could be play a factor as well. Also, another one, Skinwalker Ranch, you know, that's a, that's another, you know, very, yeah. very popular, uh, you know, kind of place for all kinds of anomalous things to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, when you uh, kind of, what, a um, couple of months, like two, three months since you released it, when you look back, mm -hmm. if you're thinking about the response and feedback that you've had, and also mm -hmm. your um, ongoing kind of collection of materials. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how has it been basically? What has the response been um, in the last couple yeah. of months? It's been honestly overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, at, at first I was um, very nervous about, you know, going on and doing interviews and showing my face and, you know, putting my name out there just because, frankly, I was, I, I just know how the UFO community can be not very uh kind not a very kind space especially when um you know people are out there um you know making bold claims and 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 i do feel like we kind of succeeded in that i don't believe we really made any bold claims we just let the sources speak for themselves and said hey here you go here's here's what it says you know yeah, um, yeah, yeah, so we tried yeah. really to make very few claims and i think that that was a good idea um because then you know if someone wants to argue they're not arguing with me they're arguing with like the source or the person who you know, who said it. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been really overwhelming, man. Uh, I've I've uh, you know I've really been encouraged to see people um, read it and um, really get excited about it, and then also to start doing their own research. And I see people mm. posting all the time about, oh, this is a loose thread, and this is that's a loose thread. That's awesome. Like that's mm. that's why we did it. We did it really um, for researchers and for people who wanted to go deep into this topic. Um, mm. Mm. And and we did. There were there were a lot of things that we left that we didn't talk about. You know, there were things that we left a lot of meat on the bones. Some of those things we did because we were lazy, um, and we didn't want to we didn't want to extend it by another third. Sometimes we did it because we just said, you know, this is something we should let other people you know chase down and and look into. And mm -hmm. um, and and now, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about Forbidden uh, Forbidden Science Volume Five coming out. There's just so much. There's so much meat on the bone there, so much left to, to dig into. But yeah, it's been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. I couldn't have, honestly, I, I, I don't think I could have asked for a better response than what we got. Um, I mean, you're never going to get 100%, but if you get like 80% in the UFO community, 
you are doing really well. Yeah, and I absolutely. feel like we're getting pretty, pretty close to that. Um, you know, cause they're, we're, we're a really rough crowd, like a really, really rough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I own that. I say we, not just, not, it's not they, we are a, a really tough crowd to please. Um, and, and so anyway, I, I was very excited to be a part of it. And, um, uh, you know, I, my, my co-author and I, um, you know, forged a really good bond and, and relationship through, through doing that too. And that's been fun as well. Cause he's, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you chat with him or not, but he's just a, a wealth of information and, and so working together with him was really fun. And, um, but yeah, I, I think we're both very pleased with, with what's happened. Yeah. Well, it is absolutely fantastic and it's filled with, you know, so much information and, you know, we've spoken, um, about, about some of it, but, you know, there's still so much that, that, um, is in there. And also one other thing is that it, the hyperlinks, are uh, all over the document isn't aren't they mm -hmm. so you there's so many things to chase down if you're you know kind of want to do it and one thing as well talking about ufo research is if you're interested in chasing down the legant story which i think is mm -hmm. uh absolutely extraordinary not just the testimony that it gives to stephen greer that you link to but also you know those names and just that it's it'd be interesting to see kind of um you know like what happened to him but essentially what the, you yeah. know i'm just interested to know that you know because he still exists a... he's out there you can find him i mean people have found him okay um, you know i don't think he's he hasn't recanted his story he yeah. i don't think he really wants to talk about it anymore um but uh you know he's he's out there so he's someone that if i were you know um someone like a congressional staffer and i'm looking for people to to bring in and question you yeah. know, and, and, uh, Wagan, if you're out there, sorry, buddy, but I think you'd be, I think you would make a great, great, uh, you know, witness, you know, to, to tell, even if it's just behind closed doors, what he experienced and, you know, and, and not do it for Dr. You know, for Stephen Greer, but to do it for the United States Congress, I think would be, totally. um, you know, a really good, a really good step. And so, yeah, there are people 1000% that are like, you know, all of these little things that are digging into those things. And even, Prior to us writing loose threads, there's, you know, there are people who have done some serious, serious digging in that case. Um, and everything comes up legit. Like there's nothing, you know, he he is who he says he is. He was where he said he was. The mm -hmm. other names check yeah. out that he provides. Yeah. Um, he has not recanted. He's not uh, enthused if people are trying to contact him and talk about it. He does want to talk about it, which I think actually adds credibility, um, you know, that he's not looking for fame or notoriety, um, you know, and... Yeah, so that that is a very interesting aspect and angle to chase down for sure. Yeah, and loose loose threads too, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. I think it's it's uh, it's one where it's so hard, and I think I've even heard maybe Ross Colthart talking about how it's so hard to write a book, you know, or to write something and publish it, like it's not just a blog, but like something more substantial. Um, when there's just stuff like information flying out like a water hose, you mm. know, mm. Um, just blasting yeah. you in the face constantly, you know, and that and that's sort of that's sort of where we're at right now, where we're just there's so much coming out that if mm. we were to publish something today, it would be completely irrelevant two days from now. And mm -hmm. so I think we found a pretty good sweet spot, um, and, and you know, for for this first this first one, and and if there's to be a second one, I don't know that there's going to be, but. Um, it's certainly something we're open to. Um, 
you know, it's something where I think we'll we'll probably wait a little bit and just kind of see mm. see where everything takes us. And who knows? Maybe we'll get disclosure, <laughs> and then we can basically write a book and have loose threads be the first part, and then the you know this will be part one, and then part two is basically how it, present day really getting into the nitty gritty of how we got to where we're getting because I think it's important. Um, I think it's important to know what the history is. You know, if this all comes out, and I suspect that it will sooner rather than later, um, not maybe not all of it, but at least broad swaths, um, people are going to want to know what the heck, you know, like, where did this all come from? I thought this was all completely ridiculous nonsense. And it yeah, turns absolutely. out that there's this huge lineage that's been going on since, you know, the 40s. How do we get from point A to point B? Um, and so anyway, hopefully that's the, the, the long, the, the short answer. Hopefully, we will do a loose thread part two, maybe. Yeah, but it's written in such a like engaging conversational style, which is you know, it, it's brilliant. It's like inf obviously there's lots and lots of information in there, but it's very human and very kind of conversational as well. And I imagine that you'll be writing uh, uh, on Medium, you know, when when you kind of have something to write about, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one where. Yeah, I, I think that I think if we do something again, it will probably be a book. I think one of the reasons that we were so successful, where that we got such a good reception with Loose Threads, was because we did it um, as a PDF with links, so that if someone wanted to know where we were pulling a quote from or where we were pulling that, they could go straight away to it. Yeah. Um, and and that's just something that's a little bit harder to do in a in a book format or in a different format. Um, mm -hmm. but it was too long for a blog, right? Like you, you're, you're totally yeah. doing that. It would have been like an infinite scroll. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but right now we're just kind of sitting back like everyone else and watching. I mean, we're not sitting back. We're, 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 uh, collecting information and, and just kind of watching and listening and waiting to see what's going to happen next. Um, you know, and, and I hope that we have a lot more to write about in the, in the coming, you know, in the near future. Yeah. Um, one last thing. It reminded me of Jeff uh, Jeffrey Mishlove's award-winning uh, essay with with the you know the videos of um, mm. New Thinking Aloud, you know, which for is Bix. just brilliant. Yeah, for Bix, exactly. Yeah, which was just brilliant, you know, to be able to kind of dive into it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Listen, Daniel, thank you ever so much. I really appreciate your time, and it's been wonderful to meet you and to have this conversation. I've I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. And so I really appreciate you um, spending some time with me talking about Loose Threads. Um, congratulations. It's a brilliant piece of work. So thank you so much, Daniel, for spending so much time speaking to me about Loose Threads. And obviously, if you haven't read Loose Threads yet, then I strongly advise you to do that. Uh, episode 44 is around the corner. Uh, but until then, see you later.